0: This is The Big B.M.
1: Analyzing now.
0: A podcast for the Baylor Medicine Internal Medicine Residency Program.
1: Stand clear.
0: Welcome to
2: The Big Big B.M. Welcome to episode seven of The Big B.M. To everybody out there, we're sending you season's greetings, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. This is Jefferson Triazzi.
1: This is Jackie Birnbaum.
2: And this has been such a challenging year, but we're ending the year on a bit of a high note. This is a very special podcast. Uh, We also just had our annual holiday party via Zoom.
1: Yeah, shout out to Shreya Shreya Goyal and uh, company for a fantastic (laughs) holiday musical production.
2: Absolutely, in case you missed it. Shreya Goyal, Aaron Chin, Brandon Blau, and I collaborated on a musical piece Uh, for the holiday party. And if you stay tuned until the end of the podcast, there will be some bonus audio clips uh, from that performance, so stay tuned. And the other big news, of course, are the vaccines.
1: And yeah, obviously, this is a huge topic of discussion that's on everyone's mind. It's hopefully the light at the end of what has been a very long tunnel this year. So we're very excited to be able to talk to Dr. Hotez uh, today, one of our local and frankly national vaccine experts who uh, will be talking to us about the vaccine rollout, what we can look forward to in the next couple of months, controversies around vaccine hesitancy, how we can best counsel our patients and think about vaccine safety um, for ourselves as well. Um, So we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today. Um, Well, we are uh, very excited to welcome as our guest uh, today, Dr. Hotez. He's the uh, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology, and Director of the Texas Children's Center of Vaccine Development with numerous other accolades. I could probably go on for hours, but welcome, Dr. Hotez. Thank
3: you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jacqueline. I appreciate it. And I have to say, Dr. Hotez,
2: in order to get on our podcast, we require our guests to have been on MSNBC twice, CNN twice, and Joe Rogan twice. So you just made the threshold to get an invite onto our podcast.
3: Thank you. By the way, you forgot to mention TMZ twice now <laughs> and, the, and, and, and The Daily Show twice.
2: Okay. Well, you you exceeded all of our uh, requirements.
3: TMZ, TMZ was the highlight. That was That's, that's, right. my, that's my... um. Guilty pleasure along with Jamaican meat patties. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, oh, oh man. Well, between the masses of popular media and the experts, we are internal medicine residents. So, somewhere in the middle. Um, and I'm hoping we can gear the rest of the conversation with the audience, the internal medicine residents at Baylor in mind.
1: Yeah. So, maybe to kick things off, Dr. Hotels, you know, a lot of us are, of course, used to seeing your work now as an established infectious disease physician, really a leader in vaccine medicine. Um, but, like, Jefferson just said, we're of course speaking to an audience of um, internal medicine trainees who are still finding their own way in medicine. So we would love to hear a little bit about your personal kind of path and trajectory to your current career here at Baylor and any general words of wisdom that you might have for our internal medicine residents.
3: Well, thank you, Dr. Birnbaum. You know, it's, um, uh, i actually had a, a, an odd path in the sense that I've always wanted to be a scientist working on tropical diseases and parasitic infections. So in some way, I'm living out my boyhood dream. Um, so I uh, was a molecular biochemistry and biophysics major at Yale and, and uh, did the MD-PhD program at Rockefeller University in Cornell. And where I started uh, had this uh aspirational goal to make a vaccine for parasitic worm infection. So I'm pretty much doing the same thing now I did back starting in 1980. So in some ways I've been at it for 40 years. And, uh, And because of my interest in vaccines... Uh, in terms of clinical training, I thought pediatrics was probably the closest to that, so I did pediatric uh, residency training at Mass General and was a pediatric ID fellow at Yale, and and actually for about ten years uh, was not attending at uh, the Children's Hospital at Yale New Haven, and I even did general pediatrics at that time, and uh, but then. Uh, made the move to Washington, D.C. in 2000 to chair Basic Science Department to be chair of Microbiology, which I loved. And that's what, when I my, the whole public engagement piece really started. So I think if you look at the 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 things that are different from what I originally planned, you know, I'm still a laboratory investigator in the sense that, you know, we're keeping up with the grants and the papers and the lab meetings. and But the other... The other unexpected piece is kind of more the public intellectual, public engagement, um, writing for general audiences, and writing books. So that's been one of the really, you know, when you make a move, I think it's always good not to, because when you make a move, you trade one set of headaches for another set of headaches. It's Mm -hmm. always good to do something big and audacious. And one of the things that I've always wanted to be was a writer. And uh, I've become a writer in the 10 years since I've, been here in Houston and and uh I'll have my fourth book fourth single author book coming out uh in the first month of next year uh which is called Preventing the Next Pandemic Vaccine Diplomacy in an Age of Anti-Science and mm-hmm. and you know, they're, they're an academic press Johns Hopkins University Press but they've been great in terms of teaching me how to write uh better uh, you know I I like to think of myself is a good writer, but not a great writer. And, uh, so that's still, still working <laughs> towards that. So it's good to still have, even though I'm 62 years old now, it's still good to have goals, I think. And still, I still like to convince myself that I can learn new things and and along those lines, when I moved to, uh, Baylor and Texas children's in 2000, uh, at the end of 2010, 2011, um, uh, we, Started collaborating uh, with a group of uh, coronavirus virologists at the New York Blood Center. So we're, I'm not, you know, many people dis- re- describe me as a virologist. It's not really the case. I'm a I study parasitic diseases and the, try to develop vaccines for parasitic diseases, but it's the. Uh, we started collaborating with this group at the New York blood center. And I say, we uh, with it includes my science partner for the last 20 years, Mary Elena Batazzi, And we started working with this group uh, in New York headed by Ying Du and Shibu Jiang and together with Ken Chang at the, at the UTMB Galveston national laboratory. And, um, it re- things worked really well. We started developing pr- uh, prototype coronavirus vaccines. And the idea behind it was we developed vaccines that the big pharma companies won't make. We call them neglected diseases or neglected tropical diseases, which is a term I helped, helped to coin and create, helped to create that framework in the 2000s we started working on coronavirus vaccines because back then nobody cared about coronavirus vaccines. And, and then something happened in January of this year, where suddenly a lot of people cared about coronavirus vaccines. And, and that put us in a made us we were well positioned now to start moving in that direction. And um, our team of amazing team of scientists used all of the information gained from developing prototype coronavirus vaccines for the last 10 years and we were sort of able to plug and play in terms of looking at that new genome sequence when the Chinese scientists put it up on bioarchive which is a preprint server in January we we could we looked at that and said yeah we can do this and the team worked day and night under very difficult circumstances because remember a lot of the A lot of things were in uh, kind of shutdown mode back in February, March, and April, but worked really well. And now working with Baylor Licensing, we transferred the technology to Biological E, which is one of the big Indian pharmaceutical companies. And now it's being scaled for production. Uh, They have the capacity to produce 1.2 billion doses of the vaccine that's being tested across India. Wow. And uh, and that's exciting for us. We've never made a billion of anything before. So that's... And certainly
2: coronavirus is no longer a neglected disease entity. Dr. Hotez, with regards to vaccine development in conjunction with Operation Warp Speed, what is different between the clinical trials that we've seen done in record time in nine months under Warp Speed versus traditional clinical trials for vaccines, which normally take decades, and do you think that the name Warp Speed is a bit of a misnomer?
3: Well, yeah, I, I I thought that name was really unfortunate, calling it Operation Warp Speed. It's a terrible name because, you know, we have such an aggressive anti-vaccine lobby in this country that claims vaccines are rushed or not adequately tested for safety. They are, in fact. But the point is, this coronavirus program of Operation Warp Speed didn't begin this year. It began in 2003 after the original SARS emerged. So the COVID-19 is caused by the SARS-2 coronavirus. SARS-1 emerged in 2003. The NIH set out to support programs and coronavirus vaccines we were the beneficiaries of that and and that's why we we're able to move so quickly because we used that last decade to identify the spike protein of the virus as the soft target of, of the virus, especially the receptor binding domain and started developing delivery systems to administer the spike protein whether it's through mRNA or DNA vaccines or protein vaccines like ours or adenovirus based technology So when you know and and unfortunately, what's happened is Operation Warp Speed's been a good program in terms of the uh, uh, quality of the science and the rigor and and the integrity of the clinical trials, but they never had a communication plan. They didn't put that in place; so they left it to the pharma CEOs. And you know, the pharma CEOs, when they send out press releases or speak to the public, they're not talking to you or to me; they're talking to their shareholders. And, and of course, they're going to spectacularize and and embellish their own contributions, which are substantial. But it, you know, they inconveniently ignore the fact that this is a seventeen-year R and D program. And so, I've tried to fill that gap. You know, when I go on the cable news. Uh, networks to to explain to them this is not fast stuff this was 17 years which is about the usual time frame it's phase three trials are well-powered studies of thirty to sixty thousand people yeah I mean the only real difference uh, with this program compared to past programs is you know usually when you're doing clinical trials phase three pivotal studies you let them go at least a year to collect all the efficacy data and safety data, but that wasn't an option in the absence of a national control program when 3,000 Americans are losing their lives every day. Right. Right. Um, You know, you do the math, right, it's times a year, that's a million people, Uh, it's just a staggering death toll, so we couldn't do that, so that's, it's two months of data instead of a year. But other than that, you know, it's pretty much all, all the same. And and so one of the things that I try to do on the cable news networks and, you know, other public venues is to actually go into the science a bit. Um, and I think this is one of the aspects of science communication. I think not a lot of people realize. You know, the a lot of the a lot of the journalism schools, you know, teach that you have to Treat the American people like they were in the fourth grade or sixth grade, and and it's and that was true back in the eighties and maybe into the nineties. And then the something called the internet came along, and people are a lot more yeah. sophisticated. That's so one of the things I try to do is really go into the science, try to avoid use of jargon, and, and I think that's worked pretty well. People like hearing directly yeah. from the scientists. Well,
2: uh, Doctor Hotez, we appreciate you for being a voice of reason, a voice of rationality on the national stage um we have several other members of the section of infectious diseases as well at baylor college of medicine dr El sali dr atmar who are not only involved in research but also in educating the public and educating healthcare professionals uh, dr Carney at the va just a host of people who are speaking truth
1: yeah and dr hotez i really appreciate you know kind of hearing um your perspective as a representative and kind of advocate for the scientific community uh, community in terms of uh, communicating this messaging public, um, but just uh, again, kind of thinking back to what we can do as like medicine residents and trainees, kind of with the um, you know we're still still in the very early stages of vaccine um, rollout, really only to um, top priority um, you know healthcare uh, providers within the first tier, and then to limited numbers of you know patient uh, nursing home kind of population type patients. But as we um, anticipate the ad- the further stages of the vaccine vaccine. vaccine rollout, kind of how should we think about addressing this as um, medical professionals, both on an individual patient level, as we're counseling our patients, um, as well as kind of on a broader um, community advocacy level? Well,
3: you know, I think you ask a really important question. And I, you know, this is one of the things that I think most medical students, physicians, and scientists don't get a lot of training in is public engagement in health and science communication. I have a paper that came out earlier this year that said one of the best ways to go up against these anti-vaccine, anti-science groups is to make physicians and scientists more adept at communicating to the public. Um, you know, when I was being trained and getting my MD and PhD, the message was, well, you don't engage the public, you don't talk to journalists, that's seen as a form of self-promotion and or grandstanding, and all of those ideas were put in place before something called the internet came along, and social media, and Facebook, and and Twitter, don't forget Twitter. Don't forget Twitter, right, and so, you know, and I think it's important now that, you know, not everybody wants to do it and not everyone, you know, enjoys it and is good at it and that's fine. But for a, a group of young scientists and physicians who want to do it, we should be able to offer that kind of training. I mean, I had to learn it by trial and error, more, more error than trial. Um, but it's, uh, uh, it's, I think, you know, and that is not really in the DNA of our profession. Either And as you know, especially in an academic health center, I mean, I, mean, I get evaluated like, like you do every year. And, you know, and I fill out my evaluation form and it's, what does it have? It's got a space uh, for my grants, right? And it's got a space for my paper, uh, scientific publications, papers, and it's got a space for my grants and for my scientific publications and a space for my grants and my scientific Yes, yeah. I mean, nowhere... Is it even on there? You've got the books I write, or the um, uh, or the op-ed pieces, or the commentaries, and uh, uh, certainly not the electronic communication. It's you know it's to so the message is more or less sent. And it's, it's by the way, it's, it's everywhere, right? This is this is the norm. So you know the academic health centers as a rule, I mean they're much better here at Baylor and Texas Children's than most places, but as a rule, they don't really like their docs speaking out or their scientists out there. I mean that I mean communication is all about protecting the brand and reputation of the institution. Mm-hmm. And they don't particularly are not particularly interested in your whether you're going to speak out on social justice issues or going up against anti-science. In fact that just creates risk for the institution, so it's, it's you know, it's not it. You don't. It's not a welcoming environment for physicians and scientists who want to speak out, and um, and I think we have to figure out a way to change that to actually not only just barely tolerate it, but actually incentivize it and recognize that it's as as important as. Uh, to what you do as electronic health records. Yes. Or, or, or as um, uh, Z Dog says, as important as the, uh, elect, uh, what does he call it, the electronic <laughs> cash register.
2: Going back to the
3: vaccine,
2: uh, there is a lot of hesitancy to receive the COVID vaccine, not just among the public, but also among healthcare professionals and colleagues. Do you think that this concern is cut from the same cloth as the anti-vax movement at large? Or is this something different?
3: It's an extension. So the um, you know the anti-vaccine movement, the modern one, has been around since the Wakefield paper and the Lancet, claiming that the MMR vaccine caused autism. And but it really accelerated around 2015 uh, uh, when it took this political turn to the right, um, especially in Orange County in Southern California and in Texas. It, uh, it started linking to uh, political extremism on the far right um, under this fake banner of health freedom or medical freedom and actually started getting money from sources that uh, supported far right wing causes And they gained a lot of power and strength. And uh, and that's when you saw organizations like Texans for Vaccine Choice were created, which is a a political action committee. And a lot of it is based in Texas. So, you know, especially the Austin area is kind of an epicenter of the anti-vaccine movement in in this country. And a lot of the lead anti-vaxxers are moving to Austin and, and, you know, then links with Alex Jones and things like that. So... um, And then in 2020, what happened when, you know, with all the Scott Atlas craziness... What you then started seeing was that what was an anti-vaccine movement just added to the remit. They started not only protesting against vaccines, but contact tracing, uh, social distancing, uh, wearing face masks, all under that health freedom, medical freedom uh, banner. And so it's just a natural extension to go after COVID-19 vaccines. And and that's what you got. So there's a very so there's a very interesting survey that came out last week, and that was. Done by the kaiser family foundation mm-hmm. uh, looking at h- levels of vaccine hesitancy and the two highest groups uh, are really interesting number one was what they called republicans which goes right hand in hand with everything we're saying, right? And and the fact that this was such a red state disease for, for the summer and the and the fall, and that's borne out by by the survey. So how do you go up against that? You know, and there there are things you can do. The other. Which is also very discouraging is the African American community vaccine hesitancy, for very different reasons, and not so much health freedom, medical freedom, but you know the historic and structural racism around the Tuskegee experimentation, also the fact that we don't have uh, sufficient numbers of African American physicians, especially African American male physicians, you know, to 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 help with address this and then the last part that people talk about less is the fact that the anti-vaccine groups have been specifically targeting african-american communities they you know been staging these fake rallies. and i mean they're real rallies they're real rallies in harlem around and again very ex- exploitative inflammatory language calling vaccines comparing it to tuskegee and that sort of thing so so these are the so what one of the things that i'm doing now if i'm really serious about saving lives Who do I talk to? Well, just to go on CNN and MSNBC is not going to do it, right? We're not going to reach people uh, on the political right. So I've been going back on Fox News. I was on for a long time on Fox News and then... You know, throwing stones at the at the coronavirus task force over the when they began going in that weird direction. I was off for a while, but now I'm going back, and so that's important. Even going on the Daily Caller and and really talking to conservative groups, and that's interesting also because you know how everything is so polarized now. There's no room to talk to both groups. So if I, you know, call out the White House coronavirus task force for, you know. Uh, uh, deflecting and downplaying the epidemic i get uh, i get attacked by far right-wing groups and then when they find out that i'm talking to fox news and the daily caller they they just go nuts i mean it's so it's there's 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 no reward for trying to talk to all parts of the country uh, and that's really bad we've got to figure out a way to to, to fix yeah that.
1: dr hojas thanks so much for you know your perspective and also pointing out as you said you know, that uh, like any issue, it's not like there's a single kind of monolithic group and a single reason that people have this degree of um, vaccine hesitancy. That for different populations, there are some. Um, uh, it's multifactorial, as as is the case with everything um, in medicine. So I really appreciate your kind of um, perspective and and different ways to um, approach that. And I will say we don't want to take up too much of your time, and we do want to um, give you at least one or two real hard-hitting questions. With uh, all of the free time that I know that you must have as a you know renowned infectious disease doctor during a massive global pandemic, we absolutely needed to know what is your favorite quarantine hobby or activity that you've uh, taken up during this time.
3: So this is really bad because you know all these you know. Y- They make you sit through all these sessions about work life balance. (laughs) And uh, and the truth is, I I don't do that very well. Um, uh, And unfortunately, I've been married to uh, Anne for 33 years, who puts up with it. Um, uh, No, I mean, I love to write. I mean, writing, you know, I think part of it is because, you know, and dealing with, you know, people constantly and issues constantly. And, um, you know, when you have a big group, there's always there's always stuff going on. And so, for me, writing is kind of an uh, is uh, there's some solitude, and I'm, I'm able to think. And so, I would say uh, writing is my is my is my comfort. Um, to be honest, I've I you know I should never say it. I haven't taken it I haven't taken a day off. I think in the <laughs> ten years I've been here. Uh, uh, I mean, it's just, no, no, I mean, we, we appreciate I the honest I mean, answer. I mean, I mean that ter- that actually terrifies me. I, I would have, you know. It's, appreciate it's, your
1: honesty. And I'm glad, again, that you did not uh, crush under the, the pressure of these uh, difficult questions that we came prepared with today. Just
3: promise me you'll never invite me to a work life balance panel. <laughs> uh, <that's>, that <laughs> happened to me once. And <laughs> I did everything I could to get out of it. So. <laughs> and final question.
2: Dr. Hotez, where should we get our bow ties?
3: So, um, uh, there's a company called Bow Ties, spelled B-E-A-U-X. But then, you know, now that I'm on TV, people send me stuff. So, uh, and then the best was a, a couple uh, uh, that lives in Houston part time, and they uh, are, they do shopping in London pre pre-pandemic, including a very fancy men's uh, f- uh, place on Savile Row called Eads and Ravencroft. And they sent me some Eads and Ravencroft's bow ties, which I've never had anything from Savile Row in London before. So now I wear those all the time. So, But I'm sure they're very pricey. And tying the bow tie. I, I can do it with one of my... Special skills is I can tie a bow tie without a mirror and um, sometimes impress the people at CNN or MSNBC because sometimes they get me at the last minute and I'm putting on the bow tie right before I'm going on, and that <laughs> really freaks out the camera people that are able to do that. By the way, so a note for the Baylor Medicine residents I love advising young people. It's one of the reasons I'm in a university, not a research institute. So and um, pre pandemic, I would uh, pre apocalypse, I would do this whiteboarding exercise uh, uh, where I'd put your name at the top and what you've done in the past and try to understand your aspirational goals and chart paths. It's really a fun exercise. It's harder to do now, but if anybody wants to have a kind of a uh, life coach session from a person who has no work-life balance. Um, <laughs> um, I'm always happy to. Uh, I know I'm not an internist by training, but I my brother is actually uh, chief as an internist and chief medical officer at Kearney Hospital, uh, which is linked to Tufts and Dorchester, and, uh, Dorchester outside of Boston. So I uh, know a lot of internists and in internal medicine programs, and I'm always happy to just to sit and listen to. Career aspirational goals, especially for out of the box stuff, because you know we don't encourage that as much. And, and uh, so, just send me an email. It's just Hotes last name at bcm. Edu, and always happy to set up a time. I used to be really fast and able to do it. You know, within a day or two, now with all the craziness, it's not as easy. But I can get to you eventually.
1: Thank you so much. That is such a, a generous um, offer, and uh, we really appreciate that on behalf of the uh, the I am residents. Um, but uh, again, thank you so much overall. Dr. Hotes it's been a real pleasure um, speaking with you. I appreciate you taking the time out of what we know is a very busy schedule as as evidenced by your lack of non-work um, hobbies, but we'll, we'll forgive you for that one. Um, and uh, otherwise, please uh, stay safe and have a happy holiday. Thank you
3: both. Have a great uh, rest. Hopefully get a little rest this period uh, next year. will well, at least the first half of the year is still going to be pretty... COVID crazy. I think hopefully as more people get vaccinated, life will get better.
0: Christmas